everybody. Welcome back once again to another episode of Paidea Today. I am Dr. Bill Friesen, and as always, I'm joined here by my colleague and good friend, Dr. Scott Masson. And today, we are going to be discussing the Romantics, and very specifically, we are going to be getting directly into the works of William Wordsworth, one of the most influential poets of recent times. Uh, we're also going to be talking, uh, perhaps somewhat tangentially, uh, about Samuel Taylor Coleridge, and here and there where opportunity permits perhaps a little bit about Shelley and Blake and Byron and people of this sort but Wordsworth is front and center and of course with the Romantics we are now in uh, an area of literature where Dr. Masson you are very much at home this is your area of specialization so I'm extremely interested to get your opinion on any number of things uh, around the Romantics and the Romantic poets very specifically here. I know that you have a lot to say on these fronts. But before we get to any of that, um, let's have a reading of a short poem by William Wordsworth here, generally entitled, My Heart Leaps Up, or My Heart Leaps Up When I Behold. And of course, that is the first line. So I'll just read that now. My heart leaps up when I behold a rainbow in the sky. So was it when my life began. So is it now. I am a man, so be it when I shall grow old or let me die. The child is father of the man, and I could wish my days to be bound each to each by natural piety. So there we are, short, brief, simple diction. Architecture is very straightforward. Dr. Masson, tell us a little bit about the Romantics and what the Romantics were responding to in the context. They have a number of uh, contextual um, issues and considerations that I think help frame their poetry. On the one hand, um, right in the middle of the Romantic period, uh, the great political event of uh, centuries before and after really the French Revolution uh, in 1789 is obviously uh, one that is uh, of unprecedented importance. Uh, it begins, as I say, in France, but then under Napoleon's army, the French Revolution is brought under the force of the army of Napoleon throughout Europe so that the Napoleonic Code uh, comes with it and monarchs are deposed by Republican armies and so forth. So there's that. Uh, it never does come to England, um, largely because of the British Channel as much as the British Navy, one thinks. Um, so there's that. Um, on the other hand, in terms of poetics, there's the neoclassical poetics. We just finished last time with uh, Dr. Johnson, uh, the age of Johnson, probably extending into this period, the same period, and probably leading all the way up to the Romantic period, which had succeeded that of the age of Pope. Uh, in both cases, neoclassical, conservative, uh, and in some ways, um, very aristocratic in its ideals. Uh, the Romantics, on the other hand, are very much opposed to that. The diction is that of the common man, a common man speaking to men, uh, and is largely um, shorn of the subject matter of classical poetics, but also the diction. You talked about the architecture being very plain and simple, and that is characteristic of the period, uh, not just Wordsworth, but of the other writers, uh, so that there's that. And then on the scientific uh, or philosophical front, they're reacting against the materialism of the Enlightenment and the mechanistic philosophies. They explicitly refer to this, uh, all of them really with uh, a sense of repugnance, the, the idea that human nature is fundamentally a material thing, uh, that human nature can be reduced to so much uh, blood and bone and uh, Again, the mechanistic philosophies of the day, uh, the best writer on this is Coleridge. He addresses it in the first half of his Biographia Literaria as part of his intellectual development. But uh, across the board, they all have a strong sense of spiritual uh, awareness. They emphasize spiritual power. There's an interest in what we would now call psychology uh, in conjunction with that. So they're all spiritual writers, I would say. Uh, they are most decidedly not uh, classical or aristocratic in their uh, understandings, and they all write from 
uh, a valorization, as it were, of the common man, and more particularly uh, of the child, uh, which you mentioned here in this little snippet or this little poem, My Heart Leaps Up. And that one line is really rather telling. Uh, the child is the father of the man. It's a bit of a, uh, it's an interesting expression. It's, it's a bit like the chicken and the egg, because of course, in what sense is the child the father of the man? Well, in the sense that the child precedes the man in terms of maturation, you are a child before you're a man. But in what, but one would never speak of the child as a father in anything other than some sort of figurative sense, at least not normally. And yet in Wordsworth's poetry, I think a case can be made that the child most certainly is in some sense the man's superior. And that's certainly expressed in the, po the poem, uh, which is called the Ode, Intimations of Immortality from Recollections of Early Childhood. Uh, in which Wordsworth, I, th I think, I mean, he's most famous for his lyrical ballads, and we'll go backtrack and speak about them a bit more uh, in the ensuing minutes. But he cites these lines, the child is father of the man, and I could wish my days to be bound each to each by natural piety as the introduction to uh, this intimations ode. And what the intimations ode suggests is that the child uh, that effectively we have a concept that Plato would talk about uh, in terms of, of a soul being uh, animated, so pre-existing the body. And we are, that soul is with God, it's clothed with human flesh and, and, uh, and it forgets the, uh, its divine birth. And what education then is, and this is what Plato actually thinks, is it, it's um, anamnesis, it's recollection. You're recalling what you already know. You don't have to teach new things. So it's not, it, this is opposed to the empiricist philosophy of John Locke, where you learn by basis of experience. We used that word ex pericula last time through, through hardship and so forth in relation to Samuel Johnson. But here in terms, uh, here the, the learning is not through experience per se, although that's part, but it's more than anything, it's remembering what you have forgotten. And so it's, it's conservative in a sense, but it's conservative and the locus for learning lies within the child. And within, so the adult looks back upon the child for his understanding of his or her life and the child's experience guides the adults. So there's a self-interpreting process which is characteristic of the romantics. It's, it's, it's sometimes described as an internal look, but to some extent, it's, it's a look backwards upon one's life. And, and out of this arises uh, in fiction, the Bildungsroman and so forth, the, the, the developmental uh, novel, uh, most common in, in Germany, of course, I use the German word, but this obsession with childhood and in particular amongst child, children, one particular type of child is in mind, and that is that of the orphan. Now, in the case of Wordsworth and, uh, and Coleridge, both, both of them are orphans, as it turns out. Um, Wordsworth uh, lost his mother who taught him when I believe he was eight. I'm trying to think now. Is, is that correct? Is that he's born in 17? 70 his mother dies when he's eight yes and his father dies five years later when he's 13. Um, likewise Coleridge his father dies first and he is he's sent to a school uh, for orphans so both men in their own experiences were, were orphaned at a young age and it's telling that the family and domestic life plays no role in their in their writing, as far as I can tell, no particular role. Friendship does, uh, a sense of belonging to a greater cause, whether that of the French Revolution on the one hand, or some sort of a spiritual movement, which really they're addressing, uh, that may be born to some degree. I don't like to psychologize in my readings, but it's not, uh, it can't be ignored that both men are orphans and that both men really uh, 
initiate the romantic movement, which to my mind uh, has kept with us to this day and with it, the cult of the orphan as hero. It's there in the words in the romantics poetry. It's there in Dickens novels. It's there in 19th century fiction, uh, whether you want to turn our gaze here to, Can to Canada with uh, Anne of Green Gables, who's an orphan, or whether you want to move it into the fiction of the 20th century and figures uh, as wide ranging as uh, James Bond and the, 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 the Disney movies and the superhero movies or Harry Potter or you name it, they're almost all, they're all orphans. And when one notices a pattern like that, it does certainly draw one's attention. And then the question is why is the orphan, which historically is a state to be pitied and which requires, at least in Christian understanding, the church to gather around to support widows and orphans, right? Why is this now being presented as a heroic uh, model for everyone to follow, to act as if one had no parents? What's the effect of this culturally? Um, I think the answer, I'll, I'll ask you the question, um, but I, I mean, I have my own answers here, but just think about all of those facts. And then you think about historically in neoclassical poetry, but also long before that, heroes are not children. They are warriors, they are noblemen, they are, in some sense, um, larger than life. Yeah, it's there's a bunch of buzzwords which get attached to the romantics. And one of these uh, buzzwords is authority. They have a very particular response to authority. And it's, on the other hand, autonomy. And there grows up around the romantics, as it seems to me, and correct me if uh, you think uh, I'm off track here, but it seems to me there grows up to be almost a cult of autonomy. And this autonomy attaches very significantly, and I would argue very dangerously, to uh, a lot of these child um, orphan protagonists that you're talking about. Um, and this is something I see as having roots even deeper than the romantics. I, I trace much of this thinking back to uh, the work of Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And his sure. thoughts about the childhood. Of course, Rousseau exerts a very considerable influence. I would perhaps even go so far as to say one of the primary influences upon the um, the thinking and the imagination of the Romantics. They don't really. So, just to make me respond, they don't actually reference Rousseau too much. No. However, the the resemblance is uncanny. Yes. And words were, uh, Rousseau sends puts all of his all all of his five children from different wives in orphanages. By the way. <laughs> yeah. a mark of the man himself i think so um, yeah and this is another thing that um if i'm honest frustrates me about the romantics um if you are a scholar of the history of ideas and you trace the evolution of various concepts in western culture um, you'll realize that uh, many of the talking points for which uh, coleridge and wordsworth and these others are celebrated are talking points which long pre-exist them in some cases and uh, Coleridge in part particular has a tendency to pick up ideas and run with them as if somehow he had been the one who has discovered them and is now going to expound upon them and employ them in his literature, in his poetry and things like this. I think, for instance, of Coleridge's discussion of the notion of genius as if this idea has sprung ex nihilo into existence and it doesn't need to qualify itself against the con historical context of that concept and stuff like this. So yeah, I think the response to authority is heavily, heavily color colored by the revolutionary, uh, revolutionary uh, uh, era, which they are uh, facing down and to some extent are being inspired by. So revolution is in the air. And of course, the calls for autonomy and, and, and attacks on authority uh, becomes popularized. And I would go so far as to say more than popularized, they become fashionable, which is a different thing. Um, and I don't think we have lost the fashionability, if you like to make up a word, um, of autonomy and rebelliousness since the time when it was first valorized by the Romantics. And to some extent, this is a notion which fills me with uneasiness, but nevertheless, there it is. Why is the rebel figure such a cult figure to this very day in music, in movie, in wherever you like? Um, and you can put a large part of this down to the Romantics and what they did with rebel figures. We talked uh, some time ago about Milton and his, uh, 
and his portrayal of Satan, and then of course the rise of the Byronic uh, hero or anti-hero, if you like, and stuff like this. That once you begin tracing these things out to a lot of the students, they'll uh, they have a lot of aha moments. This is where it comes from. These are the implications of these ideas. We're living in the wake to a massive extent of the Romantic influence. Um, there's a few other things I want to talk about there, but I, I want to turn the, the conversation back over to you here in this notion of the parent. Can, I, can we get your response to this notion of the orphan figure as hero? Well, I, I, I liked what you said about autonomy there, and I think it's correct. Uh, and autonomy is the political ideal of the Enlightenment period, particularly the late Enlightenment period. Uh, autonomy is not independence. But independence requires a, an understanding of the individual, but the individual is part of uh, uh, hum, the human race. It, it requires a concept of personhood of the individual in that sense, a person in relation to other persons. Autonomy has no references outside the self. And the word self emerges a lot in this period. Now, I, this is when you'd have to get down into conceptual uh, studies and so forth, and I don't want to get dug down into that too much in this podcast. This is something of great interest to me. The differences in terms of human nature of the concept of, of an individual as a person, which is a predicate of Christian theology, the idea that God in his nature is personal, tripersonal, and that we, by virtue of the fact that we bear the image of God, are also ipso facto persons and therefore have certain rights and uh, also obligations due to us but among other things we we shall not take a life because that life bears the image of god that's all the way back in uh genesis 9 i believe verse 4 so thou shalt not kill is not just in the decalogue it's already there in uh early genesis and the reason given is because a person bears the image of god therefore you shall not so that idea versus the enlightenment idea of autonomy, which is a self-defining thing. Now the auto is, is the word uh, in Greek for the self and, and nomos is the law. So like think of automobile is a self-propelling uh, machine. Mm -hmm. uh, autonomy is the law of the self, but, and who defines the self, but the self, the self defines the self. It, so it, it creates, this loop as well in terms of interpreting and so i regard the ideal of the period as the self-interpreting orphan and it fits with emmanuel kant's idea of the aims of the enlightenment he's asked what the enlightenment is he writes in a little treatise 1784 i believe was ist aufklärung aufklärung is enlightenment and he talks about man's uh, throwing off his nonism, his shackles of his tutelage to uh, the past and, and, and embracing uh, a knowledge that he himself will create under the, uh, the sort of banner, sapere aude, dare to know. So you're not going to appeal to authorities, neither the authority of your parents, nor of the church, nor of your culture. You are going to be an explorer of yourself taken on your own. So Kant, to some degree, underlies this, although I would say that Wordsworth certainly doesn't know Kant, and Coleridge only encounters him probably in 1798. So after yeah. he's written his lyrical ballads, yeah, he, goes, I mean, he goes to Germany. This, this dichotomy between subjective and objective conceptions of self um, and the law, as you say, uh, that regards this self, however conceived, this is very much uh, an idea. This is very much a dichotomy that is the stuff of German Romantic philosophy. Yes, uh, very much so. Hegel gets into this and goes down a rabbit hole, which I think is quite pernicious uh, when he starts discussing the noumenal versus the phenomenological. Um, but you, as you mentioned here, Kant gets into this notion as well. And I think this, to me, is one of the most defining characteristics of the Romantics, this valorization of the subjective. Where did we get, how, how is it that Western culture has become this obsessed with the subjective and the imposition of the subjective, not just upon the self, but also upon the world around them? We've talked a little bit here about nature and the nature of nature. 
And the 18th century has a very clear conception of just what nature is, especially human nature. Alexander Pope gets into quite uh, systematic definitions of it, as you would expect from an 18th century thinker. They're systematic about just about everything they do. Um, whereas we have a very different conception of nature here with the Romantics, which is in many ways antithetical, not entirely antithetical, but in many significant ways, it's antithetical to prior conceptions of nature and especially human nature. Can you talk a little bit about that and how you think the Romantics tie into this inversion? Wow, that's uh, <laughs> so that's a lot. Um, so first of all, this idea and this idea of subjective versus object objective. I think uh, it it sounds right, and in some sense it's understandable, and in some sense it's also correct. But in another sense, it's also misleading. It's the Romantics don't uh, appeal to subjectivity per se. Later writers will talk about that, though. Like Kierkegaard will talk about the subjective and subjectivity as the condition for understanding and so forth and a hermeneutic understanding and so forth. I think it's more autonomy than objectivity. So it goes from objectivity and, and a sense of a, uh, a real knowledge of the world, which includes not only the physical uh, world, but also human nature. And, and in, in both cases, there's a reality to it. Uh, um, so the moral reality of human nature is studied in moral philosophy, as it's called in, in the period, uh, and is understood there can be genuine knowledge about human nature that can be um, um, understood, articulated, and expressed, and, and embraced, and these are genuinely true. Come this period, truths about human nature are no longer just said to be subjective, but because they're autonomous, they're only... Um, revealed by the self to the self they almost can't be conveyed or taught to it so that's not really a turn to subjectivity let's let's look at it not from the outside but from the inside the inside never gets outside because autonomy never escapes the circle of itself it's it's a it's a it's a, a cat chasing its tail really um yes. Yes. and 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 that creates the hermeneutic crisis that follows which i wrote on in my uh my doctoral thesis, which became a book, Romanticism, Hermeneutics and the Crisis of the Human Sciences, because I think this hermeneutic circle uh, is inescapable uh, and uh, it's ex understood in the period to some degree. Um, and that's just simply because, to my mind, it's false. It's, it, it, it's untenable. It cannot be, the crisis can't be escaped because it's a, it's a false way of looking at human nature. As far as the spiritual aspect to it, well, I think it's to be put a, a very specific word on it. I think it's pan and theistic. It has a certain view of God, which is that God is a process, and uh, our understanding God Himself is is going through a process uh, of understanding and our relation to Him. But with respect to even the world. Wordsworth and his romantics regard God to be everywhere in in everything. Pan means every, the theism is earth, and it's in it. It's so it's not that everything is God. It's that God is in everything. There's a bit of God in the trees and in the water and in the air, and in the in a person, but also in animals. It's everywhere, which is why vegetarianism and and the environmental movement to some extent can be traced back to this period. And the first national park is in the Lake District, where Wordsworth uh, grew up and where he did his most important writing in that area, the Lake District, which is a beautiful area northwest of England. Um, and with that, there are certain consequences to that. And one of them is that the idea of good and evil become matters of degree, not of kind. Yes. And we talked about this in relation to Milton just a few episodes back, how Milton would absolutely categorically reject the idea that good and evil are a matter of perspective, subjective perspective at that. They are, they are utterly categorically distinct. There is good, and then there's the absence of good, the privation of good, not Satan. Romantics present good and evil as degrees, and to some degree, degrees of perspective so their their heroes are the unlikely orphan okay 
But how about criminals? How about the Byronic dark hero, like your Batman, the Dark Knight? All of a sudden we start getting figures that normally would be regarded as uh, non-heroic or, or certainly anti-heroes suddenly becoming valorized as heroes. That's because of the panentheism of the period. Yeah, we've also got, I mean, I, I don't want to... Which doesn't go away, by the way. No, it does not. In fact, one of the peculiar things about the ideas of the Romantics is that um, unlike a lot of other ideas which travel through a sort of an oscillation of thesis and antithesis to invoke Hegel again, mm -hmm. um, a lot of the uh, Romantic notions about art, about life, about the self, about God, lock onto target, make their assertions. These assertions become authoritative, definitive, uh, not to mention popular, and then they just never go away. They just find new ways to um, reinvent themselves as the decades and then the centuries passed. Um, another peculiar thing about romantic notions. Once you learn about the, the world of romantic ideas, um, there are countless aha moments about modern life that you, uh, you tend to undergo. And though I don't want to keep um, talking about him, in fact, uh, the less time, quite frankly, in some senses, we talk about Rousseau, the better. Nevertheless, uh, we have another notion here which ties in a Rousseauian tradition, which seems to at least tacitly and implicitly tie into what you were just talking about, the, uh, the pervasive pantheism of the Romantics. And Rousseau floats this notion of the noble savage, that living close to nature means living close to natural dynamics. And that's particularly true of psychological and emotional and spiritual dynamics, which are dictated by nature. And so what one wants to do is live in that environment according to those dynamics uh, as closely as possible in the name of some sort of uh, authenticity with as a predicate to that, the notion that man is basically good, which of course is one of the great anthems of the 18th century, uh, as opposed to Hobbes, man is basically bad. Um, so the more, uh, so the closer you can live to nature and its dynamics in this more sophisticated sense, the better and more healthy it will be to you because in, essentially you are less, uh, uh, you are less, you have become less decadent in some senses. You were less depraved, you are less twisted away from your natural form. To call somebody, uh, if you say in the romantic period that somebody is living natural, uh, naturally or something like this, you're saying a good thing, it's just automatically, automatically implied. At the beginning of the 18th century, this would not have been automatically a positive statement. That it would be a rather ambiguous statement, if I'm honest. Um, so we have this notion of the noble savage. And the noble savage is the idea that these we're discovering these peoples out there, whether they be um, indigenous peoples of North America or someplace else. And they're living close to nature and its dynamics. And therefore, their psyches and their spirits and their emotions and all these things are also operating according to these authentic dynamics. And this is a better way of being. So when the pantheism infuses everything around you with a, 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 a sense of the uh, imminent divine, one want, what one wants to do is actually one wants to connect with that sense of that pantheistic world around one. In some senses, drawing closer to the identity of the Rousseauian noble savage. And of course, this becomes immediately problematic under pressure uh, of actual criticism. Um, Scott, did you want to follow up with anything there or did you have other things? Oh, no, this is terrific stuff. And, and, and you could not be more right. Uh, and, and there is a decided sociopathic uh, develop, element to Rousseau, for sure. But I think you could also see it uh, to a lesser degree in Wordsworth and, uh, and the poets of the day. There's a sense that society is evil. So if, if the premise that you gave us that mankind is fundamentally good and from the beginning good and in fact has a noble origin in fact a divine origin and we as it says at the outset of the poem I mentioned the immortality oh well let me read the first uh, verse here there was a time when meadow grove and stream the earth and every common sight to me did seem apparelled in celestial light the glory and the freshness of a dream it is not now as it hath been of yore Turn wheresoe'er I may, by night or day, the things which I have seen, I now can see no more. And then uh, at the end of the fourth stanza, a single field which I have looked upon, both of them speak of something that is gone. The pansy at my feet doth the same, 
tale repeat whither is fled the visionary gleam where is it now the glory and the dream the ubi sunt you might recall mr uh, or dr friesen um where is it gone where is the glory in the dream well the glory in the dream of what of our childhood which has been lost we've walked away and a sort of a fall transpires as we grow old and age and experience now the irony here which wordsworth finds perplexing is that the world corrupts children and at the same time the children walk towards corruption they don't want to be children they want to be adults why do they want to do this because they themselves in themselves contain everything good and the poet seeks to recover that goodness via the imagination to have a childlike state of innocence in his thoughts which he then conveys through his poetry but as far and that's part of getting back to nature the nature of oneself is the child you want to become childlike and so they invert jesus teaching on becoming part of the kingdom you have to become as a child well the romantics almost take this literally and i hear it in churches where people act in a very quite frankly infantile way and think they're following jesus commandments rather than being mature uh, as they're also enjoined in scripture and never seem to recognize at any rate um yes there is this this idea of the noble savage and it is uh, there in the literature of north america uh, James Fenimore Cooper, uh, most famously Last of the Mohicans, but uh, also in the valorization of the of the Orient um, in this period. Uh, Non-Western cultures uh, suddenly get a great deal of interest uh, by uh, the Occident, by by the Western world. And, and so there's a, a and, and the sort of arcane wisdom which is expressed in the Bedouin uh tribesmen in wordsworth's writing or in the uh egyptian uh sophia uh sophie rather or safi she is in mary shelley's frankenstein there are all sorts of references to figures that are on the margins of what would be in their day known as civilized society and yet these are figures of wisdom and knowledge and so forth uh, likewise there's a great deal of interest in ancient languages the sublimity of uh, peoples that who are uh, pre-civilized, as it were. So the most famous of these is a bard by the name of Ossian. Yeah. He's a Celtic bard, and he his work is is adored all over Europe. There, Goethe uh, and and many other writers are raving about the poetry of Ossian the bard, who's been translated by the Scots, uh, James McPherson. And they're going on and on about the sublimity of his poetry, which is an expression of his naive circumstances. It, it's because his his passions have not yet been trammeled by civilization, by by culture and and forms of expression. It's just spontaneous emotional. And the 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 great irony here in this period, which I never cease to take Schadenfreude over, is that it was exposed as a fraud. McPherson made it all up. <laughs> he, there was no Celtic bard by the name of Ossian. McPherson wrote in this poetry, which others found wonderful. So my question at the end of that is, if the poetry was that sublime, why did it cease to be sublime when McPherson was exposed as a fraud? I, either it is or it is not. I've never yet quite understood. Other, than that, other than that, it's no longer authentic and it, it's breached with the fundamental appeal of the poetry and that's its spiritual essence that's it so this is a really great illustration of the heart of the romantic period which is an allegiance to spirituality over sense may i gently suggest that it's not just he who was a fraud but also his audience and their reading practices and their worldviews that were fraudulent um yeah this is uh this also explains to some extent why even to this very day there seems to be something we don't just talk about these um these cultures and societies that live close to nature as being less corrupted less decadent and what have you in some senses taking cue from your pantheistic observation here there's something almost holy about them there's they, they i mean they're spiritually better than us in the civilized world um, how did we come to this assumption? Because it is an assumption. It's not really an assertion anymore. Well, to a large extent, you could put this down to the Romantics. 
there's another point I, I also want to talk about here before we leave it too far behind here. You talk about uh, the hermene hermeneutic circle and the crisis with which we are presented when we're, we're engaged in this sort of thing. And we can see perhaps without working too hard how this is, as you say, it's, it's, it's a, a type of thinking which chases its own tail. So, you know, the, the self is going to help me interpret the self, then who is the self who interprets the self who interprets the self who, you know, it's, it's just on an endless loop. But it's not the ideas I suspect, which are making uh, this notion of autonomy attractive to the romantics. It's that rather, it's an enormously flattering idea. That's what makes it attractive. People like to be told that they have this almost godlike power uh, to reify a self. Um, however, they should conceive according to whatever criteria they should conceive, uh, but without access to uh, the extraneous in order to uh, derive and compose those criteria in the first place. Um, nevertheless, this notion that you should be in such a grand godlike creative uh, position, especially around the self, uh, is an intoxicating idea to many people. Um, and this is what draws them in. This brings up, well, there's so many things to talk about with the romantics, but it does bring up another thing here. Uh, I, I would very much like to hear your opinion on the revolutionary approach that the romantics have to creation and the creative process, particularly around the poetry, but perhaps more broadly speaking, because their approach to the production of poetry in this sense is radically different than that which has gone before. In the 18th century, we're dealing with um, a general assumption that poetry itself is a craft which communicates, but is itself not the source of the wonder uh, of a beautiful piece of poetry. But that's a different idea here, a completely different and again, maybe antithetical idea in some senses with the romantics. Can you say a little bit about that? I'm putting you on the spot a lot today, my apologies, but I, I am genuinely curious about where you stand on some of these issues. Well, um, you're, you're correct uh, in your observations and the general tendency. I mean, it really is it, the romantics themselves, Wordsworth and Coleridge announce that they are doing uh, an experiment in poetics and that it's in some sense revolutionary. Uh, and they believe there it's a spiritual movement and it's an embraced as such, by the way, it, it was wildly received by the young people in their day. Uh, the timing was just right for this. Um, what is the nature of the poetics? Well, Wordsworth presents it in the most humble way. It's a man speaking to men in the language of the common man and so forth. He, we can get into the specifics of his preface to Lyrical Ballads and how he explains it there. But really what it does is it seeks to replace artifice with nature. So we, we, we use the word art. The word art is simply a, a way. The Latin word art, ours is, is the way. You know, ours poetica from Horace is the is the art of poetry or the way of poetry, how to be a poet. Um, it's not talking about what the romantics are talking about, which is the craft of, of uh, poetic diction and how to write informally. In, in general, the romantics eschew the, uh, certainly the, although they don't get rid of the rhyming couplet entirely, actually, and some of them use it quite extensively, like Byron. Byron's uh, less uh, concerned than, than Wordsworth and his school uh, with abandoning neoclassical aesthetics. But in general, I would say that they seek to, ex it's more, a good illustration was the book by M.H. Abrams back in the 1953, it's called The Mirror and the Lamp, as a way of ex distinguishing the two. The classical aesthetics and the neoclassical being a mirror, so objectively representing what is seen in the natural world. So the word in Greek for this is mimesis or imitatio. You're seeking to imitate and you're seeking to do it through words. You're, you're imitating what you are describing. Now, when you're imitating it, don't think of in terms of empirical. You're not describing merely the outside of the thing, but the nature of the thing. And the nature is its essential thing. And if a thing is a spiritual essence, then you're not only talking about the outside. You're you're talking about the motivations for things and the, the purposes of things. And that's what you're reflecting in the mirror. Whereas the lamp is the effulgent light from within. It's expressing your soul. And so it has this appeal to spiritual goodness. And my argument is the spiritual goodness 
can only be expressed at the expense of words and at the expense of artifice and that even at the expense of language, for which reason we start to see in this period poetic fragments and references to things like silence, the absence of language, and these pregnant pauses in Wordsworth, it's used a very long dash, which connotes the sublime, the inexpressible. And that is the highest form of poetry in this period is the uh, is inexpressibility. And then that that is not something that you one would note before this. But now it becomes almost the ideal what I can't what I can't say, but what I deeply feel, that's the most poetic thing of all. So my feelings are the poetry. Yeah, this is this is good because um, this is another orientation distinctive to the romantics far as I, as far as I understand them, which is that um, in many of the periods you and I have been talking about up to this juncture, it has been assumed by the poets and the writers in in question that at the end of the day, um, reason must rise and exert control over the passions. Um, and that in many senses, reason is superior to the passions. It's not to say that they want to get rid of or excise the passions, but the passions must be ruled by the judgment of reason. And this is, an, it's a, I'm almost repeating axiom, uh, axioms from the 18th century here. And of course- but, uh, From Plato onwards. Yeah. Whereas the romantics deliberately take aim at and make war upon that ascendancy of reason over the passions. And now all of a sudden the passions are the things that are being celebrated sometimes merely for the sake of the power of the passions themselves. So you can hear even nowadays in modern conversation, somebody will say, well, so-and-so is extremely passionate about something. Uh, I like that about him, her, whoever. Um, that would be a very strange sentiment in the 18th century or earlier. Uh, the fact that uh, what they're saying, what they're doing is, is merely a representation of powerful passions and that in and of itself is a good in and of itself. But after the romantics, of course, that idea uh, gains tremendous amounts of currency here. You certainly see in the, let's say that, think of the Bronte's novels. It's, it's certainly the emphasis there, the, the, the emotional power of the protagonist. Think of Wuthering Heights and so forth, Heathcliff. Yeah, this notion that, um, I mean, it, 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 as we move into the Victorian period, we're going to see a lot of this, uh, well, we see a lot of certain loaded words. One of them is the word pathetic. And pathetic, of course, here doesn't mean something relatively lame and maudlin or something like that. It means that which is loaded, fraught with powerful, powerful passions and emotions and things like this. And it's often used in a critical sense, just like we've been talking about here um as uh, as some kind of a, a thing worth celebrating in and of itself i see you're reaching for a book i'm reaching for it because it, it just struck me there's a, a really interesting uh work that came out oh, it was not that long ago from passions to emotions uh and noting in the register of the english language this word emotions so to emote is to express from it so ex mote right out of oneself the passions is the historic word for those things which we call the feelings and they relate to the will and the reason as you said emotions is a relatively new thing but it's an expression from inward it has it suggests an, something inward which is not um reducible to reason or passions or will and so it's a it's a novel term and and even the word expression uh, takes on a new resonance and a new importance now. Emotions and expression, there's always, there's something within that's being pushed out. And to some degree, what we now call creative writing comes out of this movement. Creative writing is also a neologism. It, it does not antedate the late uh, 19th century. Well, as you know, from our own extensive private conversations about these matters here, um, one of the notions that I find let's try to be gentle about this unhelpful to the modern student is the idea that creative writing ought to be some form of um expressions from within an expression from within your your own personal soul of your uh, true authentic self in sort of a creative impulse and that this is what creative writing ought to do there is almost no era 
no, in fact, there is absolutely no era prior to the Romantics who would assert any such thing. Uh, the object of the writer, the object of the creative writer, as, as you, uh, you might call them nowadays, uh, is very much the, it has the sense of a craftsman channeling something that is bigger than him, bigger than her. Uh, but not here with the Romantics. It is an expression, uh, a creative expression of that true self, uh, always in linguistic form which falls short of the glory of that which is within you were right so when you express the sublime you will always fall short and Shelley actually go, gets into celebrating the fact that their very failure to express that uh, that moment of sublime self-realization and self-expression is actually uh, one of the hallmarks the markers that your ambitions to express that inner self to create that inner self he gets that uh, from wordsworth but it's, you're, you're right you're absolutely yeah. right and this notion here also like creation is an idea springing out of that hermeneutic circle you and I have been talking about, um, which is a word which was used only of God. God creates, man does not create. Uh, man invents from the, the Latin invenira. Um, he comes across ideas, he comes across notions, he comes across pre-existing passions and narratives and he works with what he has inherited. Um, but to create, ex nihilo that's that's a crazy notion uh, yeah. that that the artist should be able to do this another point you've been uh, talking about you were talking about uh, um, that sort of retrospective impulse of recovery of the authentic self as you look back to the child and the wonder of the child and what have you 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 actually did use that word wonder which is an again an enormously loaded word um, around the romantics it's in fact it's a schlagwort almost um, and it's attached to this, uh, this idea, one of the key identifying ideas of the Romantics, which is the notion of the sublime. This is not an idea they themselves invented. They've inherited various iterations of the sublime, perhaps most significantly from uh, a writer known as Pseudo Longinus, sometimes De Sublima. Uh, but in the 18th century, towards the middle, uh, middle of the 18th century onward, more and more writers and more and more thinkers become interested in this notion of the sublime. Uh, mm -hmm. Some of the German thinkers become very interested in it. You mentioned Goethe. Uh, he becomes very interested in the sublime. You have other individuals um, like Edmund Burke, who also talk about the sublime, of course. And so the Romantics themselves come across this sense of the sublime. And, and the way I tended to think, and I could be off the mark here in some senses with the sublime, is the sublime is this kind of um, overpowering sense of sacred awe and wonder, which is evoked, um, it's the wrong word, evoked, which is perhaps invoked by the artistic experience. And so beauty is no longer a, front, a, a frontal concern of the artist, of the poet. Now instead, it's the, evo uh, the invocation, evocation of the sublime. Can you talk a little bit about the sublime as you think about these things? Yes. Uh, and it's an important topic. I think it's not unimportant. It's it's vital. Um, so in Pseudo Longinus, you mentioned um, Perihupsus on the sublime. He talks about the features of the sublime. He identifies five uh, main features. Um, two of them are natural and three of them are artificial. Two of them you either have or you don't have. And three of them you can cultivate. But uh, when he speaks of the sublime, it's quite clear that what he is talking about is the most beautiful thing. So it's the essence of beauty. The most beautiful is characterized. And then he gives various illustrations of it, which range all the way from uh, Homer to, to the Bible, actually. He quotes uh, John's gospel uh, as a sublime passage. It's the most beautiful, and, and he describes why that is. But come the 18th century, and you said this, and you said it rightly, there's a great deal of discussion in this field which had not existed in ancient philosophy called aesthetics. It's a new field, actually, and it's a new term for that matter. To, uh, and the word aesthetics is, is telling because it has to do with, with perception uh, in, the, in the sense of empirical perception. So it's, it's very much influenced by the empiricist philosophy of John Locke and so forth. Now, for Locke, the, the imagination is what reconciled and unified the sensory experiences of the five senses. That's what the imagination did. So it's a very important faculty for, for Locke. The romantics and the writers 
that uh, that follow inherit Locke's view of the imagination. So it's an all-powerful faculty in unifying what is otherwise divided uh, material sensations. Most important of these 18th century writers, though, is you, you mentioned him, Edmund Burke, who writes a treatise. It's actually a philosophical inquiry into the origins of the sublime and the beautiful. Uh, it's a bit of a mouthful there. He writes it as a young man. It's in 1757 before he uh, becomes the famous conservative statesman who writes on the uh, revolution and against the revolution in France and establishes a conservative political philosophy. When he was a young man, he's writing in this field, very fashionable field of aesthetics. And he, in his treatise, distinguishes, in fact, he categorically excludes the sublime from the beautiful. And this is telling and, and vital because at this point, he wants to say that beauty has nothing to do with the sublime. Now, when he does this, I think a monumental change takes place here in, in the history of Western thought. And, and we have not yet come to grips with it. And I, I intend on writing something on this very subject. Uh, but I noticed it years ago, and I've been thinking about it for many years. Um, when he does this, and he separates the sublime from the beautiful, he also separates, in some sense, beauty from goodness and truth. They're all transcendentals. And furthermore, he puts the sublime above beauty. So there's an experience which he calls sublime, which is higher than that of beauty. And this is deeply problematic. And the aesthetics that follows Burke, which includes the romantics, often will valorize uh, the horrifying, the terrifying, yep. um, the isolated, uh, the dark, the privation of the good. All of these things are used by Burke in his philosophical inquiry to describe the sublime. It's the absence of certain things. It's the privation of things. This is a terrifying thing. Now, the sublime is something in which, and it's in relation to power as well. And this is also telling. The sublime is something in the face of which we feel powerless. The beautiful, on the other hand, is something in the face of which we feel our power. So we find a vast sea, an ocean, as a sublime, because it's, it's boundless. It, it, it has a sense of, of vastness, infinity. Likewise, a great mountain like Mont Blanc is a, a sublime landscape. Whereas the beautiful, we can think of small children, little babies, or we can think of women with their smooth bodies as opposed to men's body. Bert gets into this. And that, but he also explains that it has a particular function. The sublime keeps us in order because we're terrified. So it has a social function. So he talks about the utility of the sublime and the beautiful. The, the sublime keeps people in order. And he said, this is why um, tyrannical uh, states, the, uh, the leader does never, never appears in public because he, he's terrifying that way. You never get to see her leader, right? He's always behind the shadows. If he ever came out, you would just see he's a man. He would lose the, his terror. Likewise, pagan uh, religious sites are, are dark, he, he says. Very interesting observations. Likewise, the beautiful, he says it has a function. The function is procreation, but he connects it with power. Now, think about this and think about how the beauty is now connected with women and the sublime with men. And think about the relations of the two sexes and how they go separate ways at this point. The, so the consequences are huge theologically, personally, uh, and in terms of the human race, in terms of the, the relations of the two sexes, I, don't, I think the uh, consequences have yet to be fully appreciated. Yeah, this uh, also has some explanatory power when it comes to a lot of 20th century dynamics. It was famously said, um, in the 1930s, I can't remember if it was Gramsci or no, it was Adorno who said that beauty has is no longer a going concern in the advance of art, as if art advanced evolutionarily in some kind of upward ascent to utopia. Um, yeah, I oftentimes also describe this because he's upset there. He's only interested in the sublime, right? He's only interested in the sublime, and then he be, he begins to even. Uh, excise that and all you're left with is this power the hegemonics you're talking about now, he's interested in music but he's not interested in in harmony <laughs> like, no he's he's interested in the hegemonics of, of music and breaking and, breaking the universe of order and meaning yeah 
Yes, absolutely. I describe this, uh, this dichotomy that you're talking about here between beauty and the sublime uh, to my students. Oftentimes I say, I say to them, you know, what they're saying is that the experience of beauty is like taking a drink of water. You take the experience of beauty into yourself. You contextualize it. It is contained within you. It serves you. It does all these sorts of things to you. It, it brings life. It nourishes. Whereas an experience of the sublime is if some, some god has grabbed you by the scruff of the neck and thrown you into the sea. And now the water drinks you. Um, and, and that is the sublime experience that it is, it's, it's horrible. It's, it's, it's now, uh, the, the, the water takes you in and it's destructive and all these sorts of things. And it's full of power. If you look at some of the romantic paintings, you will see this, you mentioned Mount Blanc, oh, yes. some fa famous paintings where you have this, this, uh, Casper, Casper David Friedrich. Uh, yes. Yeah. yeah. You and I are thinking of the same thing where you've got this sort of heroic looking figure in the foreground, because of course the, this outlying, rebel figure is always a, a rather a heroic figure and he's staring up at the towering mountain in front of him and uh, staring down in fact he's at the summit looking down right, on yeah, these vast the, peaks and, yeah. and interestingly this you know you see the mists which obscure to to your other uh, your point again obscurity is very important to the sublime. yes it's a sublime yeah yeah it's it's uh, it's a notion literally cloaked in darkness um and it takes over, as you say, in, in the 20th century um, as pretty well the only model of aesthetics that they wanted to talk about. Unsurprisingly, the, the study of aesthetics and the philosophy of aesthetics died out with, uh, largely died out with that last generation um, in the 1930s, people like Gramsci and Adorno and what have you. Aesthetics is no longer a going concern. And they that's tried to the kill point. it anyway. Yes. Yeah, that's to the point. It's, it, it was killed. It didn't just die out. Um, and it was killed by noble uh, by by ideas here that uh, you and I are talking about. Well, interestingly, just before he died, Sir Roger Scruton wrote some books on beauty, which I thought were really interesting. Uh, because yes, in he, fact, I think I've got one of them right. Oh no, I don't. It's just called On Beauty, and yeah. it's a short little read, and it's wonderful. It's yeah. a, that is a short read whose investment of time pays off staggering dividends. I strongly recommend that book. Uh, it was Solzhenitsyn that said thought that beauty, it would be beauty that saved us. Uh, it sounded rather naive. Um, I think there's something to be said for the awesome power of beauty to subdue uh, opposition. And I do think that beauty is connected to truth and goodness, uh, not just in God, but in, in the world. There is something about beauty, which is the effective uh, uh, relation of anything to us uh rather than appealing to our our minds but rather to our affections uh and yet is is not disunited from reasoning and uh, to which our wills want to assent and uh, i think it's essential uh, for culture to recover beauty and i don't think that the romantics for all of their the power of their writing really appreciate beauty uh, they, they're, they're, they're seeking sublimity in their writing. That is their great goal. And they do so at the expense of beauty. Yeah, it's also, uh, we have to remember that this discussion on the sublime can also be some, to some extent contextualized by uh, a topic you and I have discussed on previous occasions, especially in ancient contexts. And this is this notion of, of Dinos, this powerful, powerful um, sense of awe and wonder, sacred. Once again, it sounds a lot like the sublime, but it is different in one fundamental sense. It is attached to the gods. It is attached yes. to the divine. Yes. Um, and it is life affirming as such. Whereas here, the sublime attaches to the self, ruthlessly to the self and to the projection of self. Um, and so it is disconnected from that which gave it life in the first place. Very good. And so one concomitant of that is that the romantics view of God is a horrifying monster, a moral monster, uh, which is picked up not only by them, but by the nihilists of the 20th century, then this idea of God exists, then I cannot. So he's got to go. Yes, the two existences are put in opposition rather as one being a, a, a as one falling into harmony with the other. Um, and uh, to some extent, you already, I think, see echoes of that formulated in some of the etchings of Blake and the prints that come out of that uh, entire world. If you actually study them, they're actually quite disturbing at a deep theological and philosophical sense. Bill, I think we've been going on it a long 
uh, a long time here and we're just scratching the surface. I, I would like to talk about Coleridge. Shall we do that next week? Absolutely. Uh, let's talk about Coleridge. Let's talk about uh, um, his oeuvre. Let's talk about Biographia Literaria. He has a lot of interesting um, talking points in there as well. Imagination uh, and so forth. Yeah. Precisely. Yes. Um, and uh, so that's going to give us plenty of fodder on that front as well. But let's uh, let's put some of these topics aside for now and draw this to a close. Okay. So I'll do that. Uh, I'm Dr. Scott Masson with Paideia today again with my learned colleague, Dr. Bill Friesen. It's a delight to be with you and we'll see you again next week. Thank you. Take care, everyone.